I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. I am so excited to share that my book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, comes out this spring. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive approach to yoga. It is available for purchase on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Chris Wilson had a normal childhood with a loving and nurturing mom who gave him many of the lessons and skill sets he uses today. But when gun violence started showing up in his neighborhood, everything changed for Chris. In this podcast, we discuss the traumatic stress young Chris had to go through surrounded by so much violence, both from kids on the street and from the folks who were supposed to be protecting him how that landed him with a life sentence, and how he got free, both literally and mentally. Chris now splits his time between Baltimore, Maryland, and New York City, and works as a visual artist, author, film producer, and social justice advocate. Through his work, he investigates societal injustices, human relationships, and public policies. His book, The Master Plan, continues to inspire people from all walks of life. His artwork is collected and displayed internationally, and his production company, Cuttlefish, has produced several successful films, including The Box, which was featured at the Tribeca Film Festival. He is also the founder of the Chris Wilson Foundation, which supports social entrepreneurs and prison education, including reentry and financial literacy for returning citizens, as well as art-related programs. Chris Wilson is a real inspiration to me. His foundation is fantastic. And in this episode, I ask him a lot about how we can support him and folks coming out of incarceration. There we go. So welcome, Chris. I'm really excited to have you on. I was trying to remember how I found out about you and your story. I feel like it was somewhere... In one of my trainings or conferences around yoga and social justice, uh, yeah, does that sound right? <laughs> it's possible. I'm not really sure either, but it's a pleasure to be on today. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. I guess I heard you speak and I was so moved. I got in touch with your team and have been talking to some folks on your team about the work that you're doing with your nonprofit and yeah. For today, I'm not sure how many people that listen to this podcast really know about you and your story, which I think is a great opportunity to share with them. The focus here is around trauma and embodied practices to help ease the impacts of trauma. And I mean, you certainly have had your fair share of traumatic events. Um, 
I know uh, you said before we started that you're comfortable talking about that, but I just want to, yes. you know, say for sure that if there's anything I ask that you don't want to talk about, obviously you're always in choice here. Okay. Appreciate that. Yeah. So do you want to kind of take it back for folks, your childhood and I'll let you take us through it. <laughs> sure. Well, I am born and raised in Washington, D.C., and I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, where drugs were, the crack epidemic was taking place in Washington, D.C. You know, I witnessed this, this shift in culture and lifestyle in my community, and my grandmother was very protective and wanted us to be in the house when the streetlights came on because it was increasingly gunfire in the neighborhoods. And stuff like that. And so we just started experiencing a lot of traumatic situations. My mom was in an abusive relationship with a D.C. police officer. So he was beating my mom up constantly, beating us up. We had to deal with that. And then I also had to deal with the loss of many friends. Every two months or so, we had to go bury a friend or someone in our neighborhood was shot. That became the normal and we started to become desensitized to it. Mm. I mean, before that, things were like... Good, happy. Yes, they were nice. It was nice. I had a, a really close, loving relationship with my mother. She was very instrumental in my life in teaching me entrepreneurship and all kinds of things, being nice to people, manners, etiquette. So she instilled in me a lot of positive things in my early life. Yeah, you're so lucky that you had that. And then, but then to feel such a change so abruptly and in your childhood, I remember in your book, you were talking about just the anxiety of hearing gunshots outside and kind of like staying up and listening for trouble. Right. And it was always trouble out there. We're always here. And yeah, I read about hearing tires, screeching, arguments, gunfire. It was a constant. And I think it you know, had an effect on me as a young person. First, the anxiety, and then you feel like you, the next protective, the thing that the body does is kind of shut down feeling anything at all. Right. I became desensitized. And then it was one of those things when I started losing family members, when I started receiving threats, that I reluctantly just started carrying a hangar for protection. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. And so around this time, things escalated where my brother was shot. My cousin was shot with him. My cousin passed away. My brother survived. And I was losing a lot of friends. And so my mom's relationship escalated in a bad way where she had to get a restraining order. This police officer had sexually assaulted her. And he was stalking our family once he got out of jail. He lost his job. But once he got out of jail, he was stalking our family. And one night, some men followed me. They came after me, threatened me. And one guy tried to jump on me and I pulled my firearm and I fired a few shots and ran away. And I ended up taking a person's life. And I was 17 years old. They charged me as an adult and I was found guilty and sentenced to natural life in prison. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even start it, but (laughs) (laughs) crazy. I mean, crazy. I'm so sorry that you had to go through all that as a kid. Yeah, me too. I feel like you're not even describing here, but you describe so well in your book. It's like you were going back and forth from your grandparents and your moms, and you're trying to find a safe place to be as a kid. Right. And I mean, eventually, like you said, you had no choice but to protect yourself. 
no adults were really taking care of you. Yeah, I mean, people kept saying, oh, it'll be all right. Or just say your prayers. Like, it's going to be fine. Oh, like magical thinking. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, don't worry about it. Life is tough, but you'll be okay. You'll be all right. It's mm. like, oh, but I'm hungry. And oh, what a bullet just came through the window. It's like, don't worry about it. It's all right. Wow. So a lot of denial. Yeah. It's just, it was strange. And it's like, I don't want to get used to this. Wow. It was like the adults in your life, they couldn't really process what was happening. So they were using denial. I think they just got used to it. They got used to it. Okay. They got used to it. I remember even not too long ago going to see my grandmother and I said, you know, someone got killed out front on the, uh, across the street. And my grandmother was like, well, it's okay. It'd be all right. You hungry? No. Like, oh my God. <laughs> totally desensitized. Yes. Yeah. And then you're not trying to do anything to change it. You're just kind of, yeah. Right. Yeah. So you kind of saw that. And I mean, you've always been, from what I've read, it seems like just really um, high level thinker and you and good at reading people and situations. And I, I guess you saw that and you were like, I don't want to be cold to what life is. Yeah. Absolutely. I wasn't really into sports growing up. I was into reading and I played chess. I did run track a little bit, but I would try to just escape through reading books and using my imagination. And I just would imagine living somewhere differently, living a different lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So that was how I escaped temporarily back then. Wow. So yeah, so then you got caught and you got sentenced. Yes. So take us, now you're 17. Yeah, I'm 17. You got tried as an adult. Did you have a good representation? You had had a little bit of interaction with the law before. Did you know like what to do? I didn't know what to do, but in, uh, yeah, I had some uh, interactions with the law. I did have good representation, but the problem on my end was that I wasn't willing to, you know, come clean. I thought my lawyer was on like, on their side, so I didn't really tell him anything. And so how can you defend me when I won't really cooperate with my lawyer? So I just didn't understand how things worked. Okay. Because you didn't trust them. Right. Right. I right. mean, why should you? You couldn't trust the police. You had seen the cop was beating up your mom. So you saw the lawyer in that same kind of... Sort of, yeah. I saw it like that. And I just didn't know what the right thing to do was. My family was like really messed up at the time. So I just was ill-advised. And so I just decided it was like, I ain't, it wasn't me. I ain't do anything. Mm. And I could have just told the truth of what, what happened. And so that was the choice that I made. I was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. And once I got my life sentence, I was instantly put in solitary confinement. I was no longer allowed to be around general population, minimum human contact. Even the food that they served me changed. And it really put me into a deep depression. And I kept thinking, my life is over. I'm never going home. I'm going crazy in this cell. I don't know when I'm getting out of it. And it was really rough for me for a long time. And I was eventually transported to a maximum security prison And I just had to start acclimating to prison life at that point. Wow. Yeah, maybe if it's not too hard to kind of describe for people, because that's very traumatic, being in solitary. Yeah. What does it do to your senses, your reactions? I think, at least for me, it really distorts your senses and your reactions. And you try to hold on. You try to figure out things to stay uh, human or just like lucid. And so you start counting, you start 
thinking about things you did, like in your childhood, you exercise, you kind of do anything that you can do to kind of create some type of regimen, but eventually you lose track of time. You know, your senses start to distort. You start hearing stuff, hallucinating, and it really takes a toll on you. Even today, like I've created a film and been advocating against solitary confinement. It really damages people in a way where the wounds that people sustain are invisible and sometimes for the rest of their lives. And so I spent a lot of time there. It was really tough for me. And then I was thrown into a general population and a maximum security prison with grown men who had been locked up 30, 40 years and was just like, figure your life out. And so that was really tough for me, that cultural shock of being in prison. I was 118 pounds, Mm. uh, had a mustache on my face and had a life sentence. I was like, figure out your life. And so I spent, honestly, my second year there, mostly depressed, smoking weed and just staring out the window. And eventually I met someone in prison who also had a life sentence, about a year older than me. And his name was Steven. And Steven was just studying. He was like, I'm going to teach myself computer programming. I'm going to buy my dream car. I'm going to get out of prison. I'm going to do this. I'm going to become a millionaire. Like he had this plan. And so he told me, he says, we had everything taken away from us, but no one can take the knowledge away that we put in our minds. And he says, this is how we'll be free. And I thought about that and I went back to my cell and I wrote up my plan, kind of like a bucket list. And I called it my master plan. And I just decided to start working at. And I shared it with my judge. I shared it with my grandmother and said, this is what I'm, I'm committing my life to. And so I've been working this plan, I guess, 20 plus years now. Yeah. And we were going to get to that and the book, the master plan. And that was really the thing that you kept your mind really focused. Yes. Yeah. It kept me sane, just studying and reading and, and exercising. I wonder, though, just before we get to the great success story, if you can take us a little bit into like that transition from your sensory depleted into, is it a high sensory place that you go into with all these guys? And what do you have to do mentally, physically, intellectually to kind of to protect yourself. And then where was the point where you admitted what you did and how did that send you on also on the this route to self-discovery and acceptance and growth? Yeah. So I think what started when I went to prison, like I had to start thinking differently because the rules were different. And usually in prison, unfortunately, you learn about the rules after you break them. And so it was all these things I just didn't know to do. And so a few people I knew started schooling me and giving me like the rules of the prison. Don't don't look in anyone's cell, even if it's open. Just don't stare at anyone for more than three seconds. And we took showers with our boxer shorts on or we washed up and those. It was all these like crazy rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. These phones belong to this gang. This phone belongs to this person. People sit here. Other people sit there. And I had to learn all this stuff fast. And then it was a lot of stuff going on. There was gangs, there was correctional officers abusing people and and people were dealing drugs and working with correctional officers. It was just so many things that was going on. And I made a decision. I said, well, how can I navigate this life in a way where I won't get in trouble? I don't join a gang and then I can make it out of prison. And so I started devising a plan to think about how I could do that. And it was a matter of surrounding myself with certain types of people. I knew in this program, you had to go to school and you had to go to therapy. So 
I said, I'm going to just start opening up in therapy and figure out what happened to me and what led me to prison. And, and all of these things over a long period of time eventually led to me making a decision or, or really understanding a few things about myself. And one was remorse. That was one of the most important things. And honestly, it took me six years to really understand what remorse meant and also to be remorseful for the crime that I committed. Can you talk about that process yeah. at all? Yeah. Yeah. So we had part of our therapeutic process is we had to go to a group called uh, Victims Impact. So it was a mixture of victims of crimes who would come into the prison. And then there were, I guess, technically victimizers, people who committed crimes. And there was this lady who I write about in my book that came in and she started off by talking about the, her experience when her car was stolen. And people was like, what you care? Like, you got car insurance, you just get another car, you get a better car. Like, they were saying stuff like that. She was like, I had to pay money to cash in my insurance claim, had to do all this. I didn't even have money to do that. And then she showed us this picture of this, this young woman. So she asked the guy, she says, what do y'all think about her? You think she's pretty? And so she passed the picture around. I was like, she's pretty? Everybody's like, yeah, she's pretty. Who was that? Yeah, that's my daughter. And it's like, oh, like, I want to meet her. People saying stuff. She says, well, some guys thought she was pretty also when she got off the school bus after school and grabbed her and took her into the woods and they raped her. And then they stabbed her repeatedly. And then they chopped up her body and set her on fire. And I'm listening to this and I'm thinking about like my body. I feel this in my stomach. I lose my breath. I'm like, how can someone do this to a person? And she looks at us. She said, these guys that did this to my baby were monsters like you guys. And I was shocked. I said, I'm not a monster. I didn't go out and just like, I'm not a monster. It really made me think about what it felt like to be a victim. Wow. And so after this group session, I went back to my housing unit and some of the guys in my group was like, I would have done the same thing. You see how she was? She over there crying. Like, look at you see how she was dressed? And I couldn't believe it. And I said, maybe there are some monsters in here. And I decided after that group session, I said, I can't just say that I'm changed or I want to change. I got to prove it to myself and to other people through my actions. So I got to start completing groups. I got to start educating myself. I got to start volunteering. And so that really drove me because I wanted to separate myself from the perception of how people look at people that were incarcerated. I'm not a monster. I never saw myself as one. And so I decided to prove that my life was redeemable through my actions. And it was that therapy session that made it happen. Wow. I mean, I imagine in prison, you have to stay kind of tough and have a shell. Yeah. And then at the same time, you're doing this work to soften yourself. Yeah. How do you hold those both things at once? That's interesting. Well, I think you do have, it's not always about toughness, I'll say that. But toughness helps. But it's about being smart and being a strategist. Mm. And I learned at an early age, incarcerated, that about 85% of the time when I got into a situation, I put myself into a situation to get into trouble, you know, gambling or just playing with people and things like that, borrowing stuff from people and not paying them back. And so I started to learn that. And so really it was that. And then there was strategic relationships. There was people who I would trade books with that I would walk the yard with that were respected people. And many, many times in prison, these individuals would tell folks, this is my guy right here. He's cool. He minds his business. I don't want nobody messing with him. And so I was lucky enough to have that type of support while I was incarcerated. But I also started lifting weights. And so at a certain point, maybe five or six years into my incarceration, 
I had gained about 45 pounds of muscle. I was in the best shape of my life. I would probably be on the bottom of the list of people to mess with. Hmm. And so those were like the combination of things where they kept me out of trouble. But really in prison, it's about just minding your business, minding your circle of friends and just doing the right thing. You see people won't mess with you. Yeah. No, I really like that. How you're explaining that. It's about your relationships kind of minding your own business. But I also like that image of kind of how you're, as you're softening inside, you're kind of bulking up and getting stronger on the outside. That's yeah, that kind I've of my life. Yeah. And I hear in your, the way you talk, Chris, and in your book, really that self-responsibility and taking responsibility for your life and the choices that you could make, what you could do, what you could learn, what you could achieve, even while incarcerated, is a really powerful theme for you. Don't worry, I'm so interested to get there, the master plan. But I do want to just ask you about the other side. I mean, it seems like there's a system in there that, and you talk about it a lot in your book, every time you're trying, a lot of times there's a lot of the system that's coming up against you. Yes. And I just wondered like, how you feel overall about the power of the individual against that kind of systemic traumatization. Yes, it's interesting. I started thinking about this a lot after a few years, I guess two years into college. I was working towards a sociology degree and I was reading about the French Revolution. I was reading about American history and I started to have this hunger of reading and understanding the civil rights movement and just all of these things. And I started to get upset. I started to feel ashamed of being in prison and these people that fought these good fights and did all kinds of things for us. Uh, I'm speaking specifically to the civil rights movement. And then I was just like, you know, I got to really pay it forward to do things differently. With this kind of introspection of myself, it changed me in a sense. And a lot of stuff started happening in the prison. People were overdosing. Gangs were going out of control. People were getting killed. I started to develop this sense of responsibility. I started to, I say this probably in the book, I started to see the criminal justice system in America as like Skynet from like the Terminator movie. I mean, so cruel that, you know, the way they treated people's families, the way they treated people, like it wasn't about rehabilitation. It was all about punishment. And it actually wasn't protecting the public, how the system was treating us. Then I started to realize that this machine and slavery was related. Like slavery never went away. It just metamorphosized itself until what we see today, this prison industrial complex of, you know, denying your right to vote, keeping you locked up as long as possible, doing business with private prisons and private corporations that's profiting off of prisons. So, so like, this is what we see today. And at some point I pledged my life to fight against this machine to Skynet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you certainly have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like those officers in there are dealing with some serious trauma themselves a lot of the times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And not all of them were bad, too. A lot of officers treated me well, just the way I carried myself. I didn't cause any problems. And some of them were even nice to me. Mm. Just like, yeah, we're going to let you go to school early or we'll let you do this. Or they just was nice. But there were others who was just all about punishment. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about you went to that victim's session and you started the therapy and you started to write down this master plan. Well, tell us about it. Yeah. So I decided 
to commit to turning my life around, even if I wasn't going to be free again. But I had to believe that I would be free again. I call it my positive delusion. And so I started writing stuff down. I shared a few copies of my master plan with people. I needed accountability partners. I shared my plan with a few of my friends. And I said, I'm no longer using profanity. I'm no longer doing this. I'm going to start doing this. And if you guys catch me in violation, 25 push-ups on command. Or I'll drink a cup of water. And so it was like a game. People thought it was cool. So I, I said, well, funny. And so I just started doing things differently instantly. It cost me a few relationships with people who I would smoke weed with. Oh, you think you better than us? You don't want to smoke weed with us? I want to get my high school diploma. People wanted to fight me over this. It was strange. I started seeing success. I got my high school diploma about two months. I got into the vocational shop. I started learning. I started feeling more confident. I started opening up in group and I started to feel better after group. And I just started to become a different person. I started to mature. And that gave me more confidence to take on bigger challenges. And I got into college and eventually earned my college degree. I started studying foreign languages. I started teaching myself to read and write and speak in several languages. And I became a mentor. And at this point, I'm in my 20s. And I was a little hesitant to become a mentor. But a lot of people in the prison was like, you got a lot to teach people. And I said, man, these guys like 45, 50. And some of them were like in their 20s and like high teens. But I didn't want to do it. But eventually I started mentoring and I did that for eight years while behind the fence. And I just felt like I was getting closer to understanding what my purpose was in the world. And But I was still stuck in prison. I love that. What do you call it? The delusion? Positive delusion. Positive delusion. That was your positive delusion that even though you had this life sentence, you were just going to believe that you were going to get out there. Yes. I wondered how, because that really worked for you. And I wondered, would you recommend that to other people? Because it's this balance, right? Like, is it good to have this hope, even if it's delusional? It came through for you, but it might not for everyone. Or does it not matter because anyway, having it helps us to do more? I think if the delusion is positive, I mean, I think it helps either way. Even if you were skiing and you fell down some crevasse or something and you're down there and it's cold. It probably would save your life to believe that at some point someone's going to come looking for you and maybe they'll find you. I don't know. I just sat on uh, optimism and, and just thinking that things will work out. That was the only thing I could do. Yeah. What good is it going to be to, to right. lose hope, right? That gave you that energy to keep right. moving forward. And ultimately, it worked for you. Yes. I really wanted to point out a couple of things that you were sharing there that I thought were great, like the having accountability partners. Yeah. <laughs> to keep you accountable and the little ways that you gave yourself these kind of punishments and rewards. I mean, this is kind of, this stuff works. <laughs> I grew up under a tough love kind of regime. My track coach, who I think I wrote about, he had no mercy on us, really. He just, I was like, I can't do it. I got asthma. It's like, you want to quit? You can go home. You can quit right now. Mm. It was like maybe sales training, but it started to make me mentally tough. Like, what do you want? Do you want to win? Do you want to win this race? Like, yes, Mr. Perguson. It's like, then don't quit. Then you got to train. Then you got to work. And it was the same thing with school. It's like, I was tired of the lifestyle that I was living that led me to prison. And I wanted to live a different life. And everywhere I looked and everything that I read was like, well, you got to put in the work. And you also got to believe that you can finish the work. And so I just committed to that. And I just started seeing these small 
short-term successes. Oh, how did he get his high school diploma in two months? How did he finish a two-year vocational shop in 13 months? And I was just working. And I started to feel like I could do more. I could do better. And I just stuck with it. Yeah. And that's something I really teach a lot. My coaching clients is about like starting with these small goals. It's exactly what you did. And then you built confidence. And so you set a bigger goal and a bigger goal. So take us all the way by everything you accomplished there while you were incarcerated, how the list changed and your release. So at some point I was 10 years and some months in on my prison sentence. At this point, I had helped dozens of people get into college. I helped people get their sentence reduced. I mentored dozens and dozens of people. And I was working with a mentee of mine. And he says, you know, I don't understand why you can't get a second chance. We watch all these people get out of prison and come back and get out and come back. And yet you can't get a second chance. And you ready. I said, I don't know, man. I don't know what to tell you. I'm going to keep fighting my case. He says, I never hear you talk about God. You know, he said, you know, I don't want to be too religious with you, but like maybe this was missing from your life. And he walked away. It made me think, right? I went back to my cell and I said, I guess I believe in God, but I just don't understand God. I don't understand how God allowed all these things to happen to me growing up. Innocent people, straight bullets. I don't understand how God allows people to treat me differently just because of the color of my skin. I started pulling out my master plan every night and reading it to God. And I would say, I read about you giving people signs and part and C's. I need a sign to know that all this work that I'm putting in isn't for nothing. And I will commit my life. If you just give me one sign, I'll get out. I'll do this work. I'll go into the toughest neighborhoods. So I did this for like two weeks. And my lawyer came to see me, but my lawyer always comes to see me. And so he said, I don't know what happened, Chris, but the courts, they changed their mind. You got a court date. And so I instantly started interpreting this as a sign. And so a few months later, I'm in the courtroom and a state's attorney is saying how I should spend the rest of my life in prison. Doesn't matter if I got a college degree. And then I remember speaking to the state's attorney and telling her about 10 years of consistency, staying up late, doing algebraic equations and drinking coffee and passing my math exams. I talked about writing letters to the courts every year and talking about what I learned the previous year and what I would learn the following year. And every year exceeded my goals. And I said, that's 10 years of consistency on the judge's desk. And then I talked to the judge about what it felt like as being a mama's boy. I love my mom to watch my mom be violated in front of me by a police officer, someone who's supposed to protect us. I talked about losing five of my friends, some of my friends who died in my arms. And then I talked about remorse for my crime. You know, these people came after me But I had to accept that I took a person's life and I expressed remorse for that. And then I talked about what I would do if she gave me a second chance. I said, I would go out, I would commit my life to this work. And then she just got quiet. The judge got quiet and leaned back in the bench. She just stared at me for a while. Like she was processing whether or not what I was saying was true or was I BSing her. And I just remember hearing my heart beating. I was sweating. There was a lot of people in the courtroom. None of my family and friends showed up, but they were waiting on their loved ones. The bailiffs were looking at me. The families were looking at me and looking at the judge like, what you going to do? And she leaned in and she says, you committed a terrible crime, but I do feel like you've been rehabilitated. And so I'm going to give you a second chance to live your life. But here's the deal. You can't get out and just get a job, start a family and fly under the radar. She says, you got to get out and finish everything on your master plan. And I'm going to be watching you. 
And so I ended up spending in total 16 and a half years in prison. And so I've been home now for 10 years. I remember when I first came home and my mom found out that I was home and she called me. It was like, I can't believe that you got out. Like what happened? And she was acting strange and she started telling me a few things to remember. And then when my mom hung her phone up, she wrote a letter and she committed suicide. Mm. And so she never got a chance to see me or the man that I become today. I've been home now free uh, for 10 years. I started several companies, won a bunch of awards yeah. and became an artist. And now I'm traveling the world. Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell a little bit. I don't think we covered like everything you achieved while you were incarcerated and what was on the master plan that you promised to achieve when you got out. And maybe you could let us know you know, where you are with that list. Yeah. So some things I achieved while incarcerated, I wanted a college degree. I think I was the first of my siblings to uh, earn a college degree and I was incarcerated. I wanted to write a book that inspired people. I believe that I've done that. I wanted to buy my dream car, two dream cars, uh, a black Corvette convertible and a Ferrari. And I have both. I wanted to buy a place in a nice neighborhood, a house place to stay. I've, I've done that. I've wanted to travel the world. To date, I've visited maybe 27 countries. I've added some stuff to the master plan about paying it forward through philanthropy. So I've started a foundation, the Chris Wilson Foundation, where I support and help uplift aspiring people who've been impacted by the criminal justice system. So educational opportunities, art-related programs, and financial literacy. Yeah. And so that, those are the things that get me out to bed in the morning. And I think this is my life's purpose. I went through all the things that I've been through to become the person that I am today. And the work that I'm doing is just meaningful work. And this is what I'm supposed to do. Absolutely. And I'm hoping to get involved with your foundation. It's just incredible what you're doing Thank and how you're paying it forward. Thank you. I love how you use, you just talked in your book about using images as well. I mean, I kind of think it was like vision boarding what you were doing, seeing your your yeah. life. Yeah. I didn't know about vision boarding when I was incarcerated and people used to laugh at me. It was part of my positive delusion. All these magazines and I would have pictures of myself and my friends and I would cut myself and my friends out of the pictures and I would paste them on top of these magazines, I would be on the beach or on a boat or in the car dealership buying my dream car. And I would look at these every night and I would just be like, one of these days, but it just, it kept the dream and the hope alive every night. It just would renew it. And I was just like, I can't wait to do it. I love that. And uh, it just feels so good when you can check things off of your list, off of your master plan. Oh my goodness. I love a, a check mark or cross out something on a list. I think many people can relate to that, right? That handle. And did it. <laughs> and again, I, I have a lot of questions about your um, your work as an artist. I just want to ask you a little bit first about coming out of incarceration. You spend how many years, Chris? I know you just said it was... 16 and a half in total. Yes. And that was a big chunk of your life. Yes. You know, what was it like coming out? I know we work, I have a nonprofit and a lot of the yoga, meditation and mindfulness um, we bring to folks coming out of incarceration because that's not an easy transition either. Right. What was that like for you? What things helped you? It was, it was a challenge for me, especially I was 32 when I was released. 
And there were some responsibilities of being on parole and probation. You need to get a job and you got to be able to check in and got to, you know, things that you had to do. I found those things challenging. It took me a while to get a job, but maybe not that long. It took me about 52, 53 days to get a job. I went back to school. But I think the most difficult thing for me and for most people is the emotional challenges of coming home. So I came home, I was 32. I was seeing people my age who had cars, who had families, who were going on vacation, who was living differently, who had resources. And it took a toll on me psychologically. And and a lot of people want to catch up. They see people who look like them the same age. And they're just like, I want to get a car and I want to rush to do it. And oftentimes people will make poor decisions of trying to do something quick to get the money in order to catch up to be like everyone else. But I was lucky to have a few people in my life when I was going through this and, you know, I would, I would have my head down. I would just be really sad. I had my, my $10 phone from Radio Shack and I would see a nice woman in the bar and I would try to talk to her. And she was like, where you work at? Where's your car? And what, and what you've been doing like for the past couple of years? And why should I talk to you? And I just would feel so small. Oh. And so all of these things will put me in a, in a state where I wanted to rush. I wanted to catch back up. And my support system would always remind me, you got to be patient and you got to remember where you came from and how hard you work. You are successful because you made it out. You had a life sentence. So what if you're sleeping on the sofa or on the floor in the basement, but you just got to be patient. And so I would listen to my friends and I would just be patient. And I was riding a bicycle. I didn't have money for a car. didn't even have a driver's license. And I just was patient because the people who were in my corner supported me and I knew it was the right thing to do, but it wasn't easy. And I think that's the biggest challenge, especially for men and women when they come home, especially if they have families and children, is like that emotional support, that responsibility of you got to acclimate back into society, but the system doesn't make it easy for you to acclimate. It's Mm. all these different uh, landmines that they place so that you can go back. Yeah. I'm hearing that really having some good people around is, is one of the best things. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wonder also, like emotionally, when you get frustrated or, you know, even if it happens now, if memories come up, if anger comes up, do you have some tricks, therapies that you use for that? Is it working out? Is it your art? Is it talk therapy? Uh, All the above, actually. So I still go to therapy. I go to therapy every Wednesday. I put a lot of emotion, a lot of stuff into my art. Art is cathartic for me. So uh, my therapist even encourages it. Put it on the canvas, Chris, which she tells me. So I do that. I definitely exercise and I watch my diet too. So I eat right, make sure I exercise and keep my mind and my brain sharp. But it's also a really good stress reducer. And then I do things. I, I understand balance. And it took me a long time to understand that I can't give the world 100% of myself if I don't take care of myself. So I go on vacations. I go mm-hmm. to spas. I meditate. I take time, you know, one day out the week where I don't work and I just mm-hmm. relax. And so these are things that work for me. Did that meditation something that you learned in your therapies or did you teach yourself or see it online? Online, but also a few friends that I respect. I say, I get up, I do some meditation. I'm just like, what is that going to do? That's, I'm wasting 20 minutes. Like, just, <laughs> just try it. It's one of those things where you just feel different. It's more like you understand yourself better. It's good. Even breathing exercises I find helpful. Oh, yeah. Are there any particular ones that you like to use? 
I don't have a particular one, but usually some of my work colleagues, we always lead some of our sessions or days. We might have a conference or something. We'll start with it. I just, I like it. So I, I like to learn more about it, but yeah. Yeah. So you came out, you're on some couches, but not anymore. Uh, <laughs> why don't you share, you know, the business that you started and. Sure. So when I came on, my first business was a furniture design and restoration company. And I was pitching that to my school. I was in business school. And so I was, this was my business idea to do this because I knew I had the skills to sew and, and make furniture. And I started that company, started doing lobbies for like hotels and designing lounges. It was great. So I did that for a couple of years, about eight years. Along that time, I guess two years into uh, the furniture company, I started another company, construction contracting company that grew really fast. So we went to like 23 employees in in six months. And we were doing demolition. We were building uh, apartment buildings. It was wonderful. In both companies, I was hiring formerly incarcerated people. And, you know, it was great. We started winning a bunch of awards for our work, including winning a presidential award from Obama. And so I got a chance to go to the White House. It was really wonderful. And a few years into all of this is when I decided I wanted to write a book. And that's when I started working on getting a book deal to publish the master plan, which I was able to do. And I ended up optioning off the rights to the movie. So it'll be turned into a limited series at some point. We're working on that now. Yay. (laughs) That's great news. But around this time, I guess eight years ago, I got into also painting. And it was one of those things that I found uh, soothing and therapeutic. And I just started painting every day. I would get come home from school and work and I would have a studio in my basement and I would just paint and it was cathartic for me just getting things out and what are these color how do these colors make me feel? And I started telling stories through the art. And I've been painting now for eight years. I shut down my companies in 2020 when the pandemic hit. I was really sick with COVID and was fighting for my life. And I was one of the first. I got sick in January. 2020. Oh, man. I was sick for about 23 days. I got a lot of people sick, including my doctor and her family. And I became a long hauler. So I still have some symptoms from having COVID and some complications, but I'm still alive. And since then, I've just been focusing on my foundation, the Chris Wilson Foundation, and then my work, my artwork under my company, Cuttlefish. And so we do short films and I make art. Your art. Chris is unbelievable. Um, you didn't go to art school? I did not go to art school, no. This is a gift. This yeah. is coming through you. Yeah, I love it. It changed my life. And now I paint and create every single day. Wow. I mean, folks, we're going to link everything. You know, we're going to link your sites and your Instagram where you can see a lot of your paintings. I mean, you would just, I, I have no words. <laughs> your your work is just, it's so moving And it's incredible to meet someone, to speak to someone who has both the ability to be so intellectual (laughs) and then so artistic and creative. So you have a lot of gifts, Chris. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you're going to be doing some more art shows, maybe in New York City. I saw you've been in Chelsea. Anything coming up? I'm working on a big show, actually. It will be an immersive installation also some paintings and some videos. And so I've been working really hard at this 
And I'll be in a few group shows over the next couple of months. I probably know solo shows probably until next spring or something like that. Okay. We'll have to stay updated on that because I yeah. want to come out and see your work in real life. <laughs> I'll though every day though. So I'll post some stuff and I have a few studios around the country that people can visit and check out some art. So the artwork and the films, I know you were using some of that work to promote your message around solitary. Yes. Can you just explain the connection a little bit? Yeah. So I collaborated recently with a cannabis branding company, House of Puff. It's a Latina uh, run and own company. I really hit it off with these ladies and they also care about issues that I care about, criminal justice reform. We decided to collaborate and use like this opportunity, this space to tell a story. I mean, especially all, all the people that have been incarcerated over marijuana is ridiculous. But I wanted to do a show in one of the spaces that they managed, do a show and tell a story about solitary confinement through colors and paint. And I did a solo show in New York. It was wonderful. And I also had a film, 14-minute film, that I executive produced, The Box, which is now at The New Yorker. We sold it to The New Yorker, so like they're pushing it now and distributing it. And But we allow people to watch the film. We allow people to soak in some of the art and understand the stories about that what we're talking about. And percentage of proceeds went to organizations that were fighting against solitary confinement. So Solitary Watch and maybe two other companies that we would donate to. And so the House of Puff, we use some of the art, my art, to design the cannabis rolling papers. And so those rolling papers are still for sale and percentage of the proceeds go towards Solitary Watch and other organizations uh, in solitary confinement. And so I like to do stuff like that. Use the art as a weapon and mm. you tell a powerful story and you do some good in the world. Like what better art than that is there? None. And you're using the art, which is so attractive to get your message across and getting more people involved with making change within this prison industrial complex system. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that for folks listening who want to get involved, who want to make a difference, what we can do. I mean, I know one small thing that I started doing since I got in touch with uh, Emma on your team is just becoming a, a pen pal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes all the difference in the world. I would say that we could hold our local elected officials accountable. And when we go to the polls to vote, we shouldn't just think about who's the mayor, who's the governor, who's the president, but there are judges and there are state's attorneys who go up for election that have a lot of discriminatory power to either put someone who has a drug problem into prison or put them in a drug treatment program. So they have these discretions that he can make these decisions, but we need to elect the right people in office that can do that. Another thing that you can do, you can also reach out to the Chris Wilson Foundation. We at chriswilsonfoundation.com. We are doing our best to help equip aspiring people who have been impacted by the criminal justice system with educational opportunities. Like I said earlier in this discussion, no one can take away the knowledge that you put in your mind. And so we want to help people fill their minds with knowledge. I feel that everyone has potential and has this switch inside of them where they can develop agency over themselves, that they can do something dope in life. And so we want to work to help people find those uh, switches. And then I want to support art-related programs that pushes this message and then financial literacy. 
This is America. This is a capitalist economy. Understanding money and finances, whether you like it or not, is essential in this life. And so those are the things that we want to do. So folks who want to support that, folks who want to give us advice, give us some funding, I encourage you all to reach out. Yes. Your foundation. Oh, by the way, I think we all can use some financial literacy. (laughs) Why aren't they just teach this in schools, right? Right. That's what we actually need to, uh, yeah. Get a job, get a job and find job security and retire and make someone else rich. That's what they teach you. That's right. That's right. And so you're teaching something different. I love what you said. Agency. Yes. If we can learn those tools, we can take control over our lives and change our stories. I'm on your site right now, stories, systems, and new narratives. I know you have a pilot program based on the master plan, right? Yes. You want to just share a little bit about that? We have started, we did a 1.0 version of taking the master plan book and turning it into a course in collaboration with ed tech company, APDS. And so that 1.0 course is now in 22 states and over a hundred facilities, jails and prisons. We wanted to do a more robust version of it where we included a unit about trauma. We included a unit about re-entry into society and just kind of made everything a little stronger. And so that second 2.0 version course is just rolled out in the state of New Jersey and the state of Maryland. And it's being facilitated by uh, formerly incarcerated people that we trained to do this work. And we paid them really well, too, by the way, if I can say uh, $50 an hour, I think is a really good hourly wage to do this work. And then people have the opportunity to go through a 13-week course and create their own master plan. And when they graduate, you become alumni, master plan scholar, and you continue to get advice and all kinds of support and finishing your master plan and living a, a beautiful life. And so this is what I'm most proud of, even above the art. I really love making art and traveling. But this is my life's work. This is my life's purpose is doing this work. It's wonderful, Chris. Your book is fantastic. It's called The Master Plan, My Journey from Life in Prison to a Life of Purpose. And then, I mean, it made absolute sense to turn it into a course where you can teach other people what you were able to do with your focus and determination and help them to get where you are. And I know you're not done. (laughs) Just maybe one or two more questions, Chris. One thing I really noticed and respect about you are the way that you've taken so many influences and integrated them. You have a list at the back of your book of other books. Yeah. And I wonder if there are some that are standing out for you right now, like who's inspiring you right now? What are you reading? How are you elevating to your next level? Good question. Some of the books that I listed in the back. I know one just came to mind was uh, 92 Tricks of How to Talk to Anyone. That came to mind because I used to get teased for reading that book when I was incarcerated. And people would say, what, you don't know how to talk to people? And I would just, yeah, I would laugh. Yeah, I would just, you know, always room to learn. But what I, I started that book because what I started to understand from reading a lot and being in college, that everything that we do in order to be successful, it was really about those relationships with people, whether it was business, everything just centered around relationships and how you talk to people, how you communicate was essential. And I learned so many things from this book in particular, all kinds of things. And so that was something that was a takeaway for me. And that's why I included that book. But other books that I've read, I'm reading a lot of art books now, uh, which I find really fascinating. I just really want to understand 
the market that I'm operating in. Like the biography of Frederick Douglass, I start my book with quoting Frederick Douglass when he understood the power of education and when he was trying to teach himself to read. And that was his aha moment. And so a lot of books that I read, I do appreciate a good story, but I really like that wisdom where when I close the book and I finish it, that there's some tangible takeaway. Yeah, I like to read books like that. I try to read a book once a week, a new book every week. And so I will hopefully do this for the rest of my life as long as I can. Keep reading, keep learning. You, I don't think anything could ever stop you, Chris. <laughs> you are a lifelong learner, truly an inspiration, your energy, your focus, and the way you're giving it back and you keep moving forward. I'm glad to hear that you're taking care of yourself and taking some days off and some vacations as well. Because I know that determined mind and sometimes we can get in our own way. <laughs> I wonder if there's anything I neglected to ask you today or anything you wanted to share that we didn't get to. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of stuff, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And folks who want to really delve in more can go and get a copy of your book. Yes, please. Yes. And check out your website chriswilsonfoundation.com, which of course we'll link in the show notes and we'll be looking for you to hear when your next immersive art show is and all yes. the things you have coming up. And follow me on Instagram, Chris Wilson's life, painting, traveling, and living my best life. Yes, you are. And I'm following you and I love to look at your art there. Thank you for making the time to speak with me, Chris, and to introduce yourself and your work to our listeners here. Thank you so much for having me. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.